Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number eight. This is The Right Take. I'm Eric Lendrum. I'm Jacob Grandstaff. And, well, he may not be in office anymore, but it's pretty safe to say that President Trump is still winning one way or another. He's now, what, two for two in impeachment acquittals, which is the first time ever for a any office holder, certainly a president of the United States. He was acquitted again by the Senate in a very sudden vote, honestly. I got to admit, Jacob, weren't you surprised by how quick that vote came down on Saturday night? Yeah, I was. I didn't expect it to be. I figured it'd uh, linger on um, at least a few more hours. I didn't expect it to come that quickly. I just remember I was I was chilling a Saturday night. This was uh, even before I, I I went to. I ended up going to a party uh, Saturday night, a Valentine's Day theme party in uh, in Georgetown. But before that, I was still just chilling, doing what I do most, which is play video games. I was just playing a couple rounds of Dead by Daylight, and then suddenly I checked the news, and my friends are posting on social media, "Hey, Trump is acquitted again," and I'm like, "Oh." Already? Oh, that, that was that was fast. All right. The final vote was 57 to 43 in favor of conviction, which, of course, is 10 votes shy of the 67, which is a two thirds majority of the Senate required to convict him. And if he were still in office to remove him. But of course, he wasn't in office. If they had reached a conviction, they then would have been able to hold a secondary vote where only a simple majority would be required to vote to bar him from running for office ever again. So obviously he was not convicted, so he can totally still technically run again. So Trump 2024, am I right? Uh, I will not be voting for Trump if he runs in the primary in 2024. Ouch! Okay, that's that's harsh and straightforward. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, we want to summarize for you, of course— the names. One thing we love to do here at The Right Take is name names when they deserve to be named. And we will name these shameful names as they deserve to be named. Seven Republicans sided with the Democrats to vote to convict President Trump. Those seven are Richard Burr, North Carolina, Bill Cassidy, Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, of course, Mitt Romney of Utah, Ben Sass of Nebraska, and Pat to me of Pennsylvania. So this was actually a little interesting because leading up to the impeachment trial, there were there was a vote previously on a resolution that Rand Paul introduced to declare the trial unconstitutional because obviously he's a former president. You can't vote to convict or remove a former president. That doesn't make any sense. And there were five Republicans who sided with the Democrats to vote against that resolution. And that those five were Murkowski, Collins, Romney, Sass, and Toomey. Then there was another vote on the formal resolution to move forward with the trial, another procedural thing. And on that vote, those same five Republicans were then joined by Bill Cassidy. So that brought it to six. Then on the final vote to actually convict the vote of the guilty or not guilty vote, those six were then joined by Richard Burr. So there's certainly there's a lot of questions as to why these two stragglers in particular kind of just were picked up over the course of it rather than sticking to their guns from the very beginning. Why, especially Burr, who just suddenly came around and voted to convict Trump after previously voting that, that it would twice that this would be unconstitutional. So, Jacob, you had a, a theory about why we saw a couple of stragglers get picked up like that. Well, Rand Paul's procedural vote gave President Trump or former President Trump a floor of 45 senators who were going to vote to acquit. So, that, in other words, those 45 senators were saying – we don't believe that it's constitutional to even hold this vote. We don't even believe it's constitutional to hold this trial. That, that, that we should even consider the question of whether or not Trump incited the riot on January sixth. How do you go from that? How do you go from forty-five senators down to forty-three? If anything, that should be your floor. You should be picking up a senator or two. If your lawyers are doing their job in the courtroom, which is the Senate, they should bring that number up to forty-six or forty-seven, preferably forty-eight. But to lose a senator in the front, just from the opening arguments, Bill Cassidy jumped from it's not constitutional to hold this trial to yes, it is constitutional to hold this trial from the opening arguments. So he did – Trump's lawyer did such a poor job in the opening arguments. The Democrats did such a fantastic job in the opening arguments that they convinced Bill Cassidy, who is not a rhino by the way. He is a conservative. He's from Louisiana. You kind of have to right. be he is, from a he state is like that. He's very conservative. His uh, constituents are very conservative. You take out New Orleans, and Louisiana is one of the most conservative areas of the entire country. So in order to pull him from it's not constitutional to it is constitutional, you've got to do a pretty bad job at your opening statement. And then in the trial itself, of course, like you mentioned, Richard Richard Burr jumps ship, and he votes to convict. So I see this as just an epic failure all around. 
from Trump's lawyers in their in the case they made, and a pretty uh, fantastic job on the part of Democrats. In my like, you point out that Trump won. Sure, he wasn't convicted. But Trump was never going to be convicted. This was, I mean the, the, he was going to win this trial. He was never going to be convicted. That wasn't the point. The point is the Democrats won this war or this battle, if you will, by a glorious margin from their perspective. Yeah, the three lawyers who represented the president in this case, uh, David Schoen, Bruce Castor, and Michael Vanderveen. Castor was definitely the worst. He was just kind of stumbling and bumbling and – Going off on random tangents, not in the way that Trump does it when it's kind of cool that he goes off on conversational tangents when he's giving his rally speeches. Just went off on tangents that made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Schoen was just kind of like, eh, just perfectly bland, typical lawyer. Vanderveen was the best for sure. It was his defense. It was his portion of the defense where they played videos of Democrats calling for violence. Because one of the things the House managers did, there were so many things the House managers did that were just absolutely just so filthy and, and slimy, including censoring. They they edited videos of the president's speech from january 6th where at one point he's he's talking and he's talking and he says we're gonna go i want you to march down to the capitol to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard and the democrat house impeachment manager's video cut off right before he gets to the peaceful part deliberately cutting it off which that's the crucial part here he's obviously saying hey go be peaceful among many other things they cited um screenshots of multiple tweets from president trump using the word fight saying we must fight we must fight voter fraud fight 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 saying oh this is obviously a call to violence and vanderveen comes along and says all right you want to play that game let's play that game and he plays a whole bunch of video clips of maxine waters john tester pelosi so many other democrats using the word fight in much more explicitly violent terms calling for physical violence or calling for altercations and just completely shut that down so vanderveen definitely did the best and he's even been pretty good making his rounds on mainstream media too so i think he he definitely was the best but yeah absolutely they did not do their job very well i do think real quick a theory on why some of them flipped i mean you can definitely argue that the legal team the defense team didn't do a great job i think if nothing else it's it's the simplest explanation for in burr's case Burr is retiring, by the way. Burr is retiring next year in North Carolina. He's announced he's not running for re-election, which, by the way, he and Toomey from Pennsylvania are the two who are not running for re-election. They both would be up next year. They are both retiring, while Cassidy, Collins, and Sass were all just re-elected last year, so they're not up for another six years. Romney is not up until 2024, and Murkowski is the one who is running for re-election next year so that is the best test right there along with the 10 house republicans who voted to impeach him as well for a great maga candidate or america first candidate to try to primary her out the name that's being thrown around right now is sarah palin um and i uh i i have mixed feelings about that but at this point nobody can be worse than murkowski so we'll see how that plays out from a conservative standpoint the the trial was in, uh from start to finish for in my opinion for uh, like i said i didn't watch the whole thing i just read about it i read the the summary of what happened it, to me, it was just one big shit show for the Trump movement from start to finish, and it, it falls squarely on the Trumps on, on Trump's lawyers' shoulders. And you can you can argue that Trump's at, to blame because he hired these people, just like you can hire you can argue that he's to blame for hiring such incompetent losers in his administration. But when you look at the way that the Democrats argued it, and you compare it to Trump's lawyers, the Democrats weren't they understood that they were not going to get a conviction. They understood that going into it. So they, they were playing the PR game. They were wanting to humiliate Trump before the American people. They were wanting to make the case that Trump was not fit to hold office. And Trump's lawyers, they were arguing it from the constitutional perspective. They were going into it as if it was an actual trial. This was never going to be an actual trial. This was just a show trial. It was it was just political theater. And when you have lawyers that don't understand that, they're going to get – they're going to absolutely uh, – the floor is going to get wiped with them. I don't know if you ever remember those cartoons from like the 50s and 60s like Tom and Jerry. Yes. You, you know, you'll see like, – like, um, like you'll see a cartoon character grab another one and just you know, sling them all over the floor, knock them up against the wall, throw them around. Crush them with an Acme anvil and they're literally flat. Yeah, that's basically what happened to Trump's lawyers during this, uh, during this trial. And you mentioned Vanderveen as the – you said that he's the best of the three in your opinion? Absolutely. So this is what – so Vanderveen in – Back in August, oh, I know which trap I just walked into, but please proceed. Well, it's not. A tra- I mean, it's just everyone knows. Everyone's <laughs> read about it. Vanderveen uh, said f Trump back in his law firm. firm said uh, criticized Trump. Said f Trump. Uh, attacked Trump for claiming that mail in voting was susceptible to fraud. Claimed that that was nonsense. They continued to attack Trump after the election, and Trump, you know, Trump was uh, rightfully claiming that there was fraud in the election. 
So you're going to bring a guy like this into the trial, and in the very first day, I believe – I don't know if it was the opening statement. It was the very first day when the when the Democrats were making their case. It might have been Vanderveen. I, th- I think it might have been Castor. Was that his name, Castor? Bruce Castor. Bruce Castor. Yeah. I think it was Bruce Castor. He was arguing that the whole trial is illegitimate because – there, he said the Democrats are only having this trial because they want to disqualify Trump from running in 2024. We should let the American people decide that, just like we let the American people decide right. to elect he, Joe Biden as president. He basically acknowledged that the results were legitimate even exactly. though they were And at that point, because the Democrats weren't running on what Trump said, they weren't arguing against what Trump said on January 6th. They were making the case about what Trump said between November 3rd and January 6th. They were – they turned this trial into an indictment against Trump claiming fraud. And on the very first day of the trial, Trump's lawyer goes up there and admits that – It says there was no fraud. Right, and he tells the Democrats, yep, you're correct. There was no fraud. Well, at that point, it's over. You've lost. Like the, They understand they're not going to get a conviction. In fact, if it wasn't for the political pressure that Trump supporters would put on Republicans whenever they're up for re-election, you'd probably got a lot more Republicans to vote for – to convict. In fact, you might have even gotten a conviction. But because of the political pressure, they understood they weren't going to get a conviction. So their goal was to pull moderate – Republicans and independents and the politically unaware over to their side. And I think they did that. And the polls I get, bear that out. I get what you're saying. I, first off, I, I doubt all polls because polls are polls. But I think at the end of the day, if it really was political theater, they went in knowing they wouldn't get a conviction. What, how did they not know that this would only end up helping him? I argue that this still ultimately – yeah, his lawyers sucked. But that doesn't hurt Trump because at the end of the day, Trump the man – is Trump the man? Just like how in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, when the polls and everything were in the media narrative was all saying, oh, Trump's responsible for a riot. Blah. Then he gets banned by every social media platform, and that rallies so many people back to support him because he's been silenced. They see him as a martyr. It's kind of the same thing here. They're picking on him. They're kicking him while he's down, picking on him and trying to impeach him even though he's not in office anymore. When there's no point, especially when in the midst of the virus decisively getting worse, more they projected that up to 100,000 people could die in Joe Biden's first month in office, by the time of his first month, 100,000 people. That's a quarter of the total coronavirus deaths over the course of Trump's entire last year in office. A quarter of that, one month of Joe Biden. It's getting decisively worse. We're no closer to a stimulus bill or aid package or anything. They're piddling around with impeachment just like last time, just like a year ago when the coronavirus was just getting started. They were wasting time ceremoniously walking the articles of impeachment through Congress rather than actually doing something that helps the American people. So I think at the end of the day, they can pat themselves on the back and think that they all did a good job. But this ultimately does help Trump in the grand scheme of things because it further proves they have no plan now that he's gone. All they want to do is keep talking about Trump. They never had a plan for being anything other than the anti-Trump party. And now he's gone. Impeachment's done. You can continue to talk about it into the media a little bit longer. But sooner or later, that's going to fade as well, and people are going to turn to Joe Biden and the Democrats in Congress, Pelosi and Schumer, and ask, all right, enough about Trump. What are you going to do differently? Yes, it was political theater, but it was more than that. Their strategy, since they knew they weren't going to get a conviction, was to pull Republicans away from Trump and get them to vote for to convict. And Bill Cassidy is a perfect example. How do you get Bill Cassidy to switch it to, to change his mind on – whether or not it's constitu- it's unconstitutional to constitutional, and then get Richard Burr to vote to convict. Those are two red states. North Carolina is turned in purple, but it's still a red state. Louisiana is dark, dark red. Um, at, you know, Bill Cassidy wouldn't have made that decision, I don't believe, if he didn't think that he could go to the voters of Louisiana and defend his case. Or perhaps and, he's just so cocky that he thinks, you know, hey, I just got reelected. I'm not up for another six years, so maybe they'll forget by then. Kind maybe, of thing. maybe so, but I think same with Collins and Sass. But I think they genuinely, I think the um, the impeachment managers and the Democrats successfully convinced him that they that Trump overstepped his bounds as president, that he deserves to be convicted because he violated his oath of office. And the same with Richard Burr. I think they the Democrats just outmaneuvered the lawyers that Trump picked. And here's the thing: Matt Gates, Congressman Matt Gates from uh, from Florida. He actually offered to resign his seat and defend Trump and argue on the merits of voter fraud. And if he had done that, since the Democrats are already making it about voter fraud, because their argument, and this is what the media has been running with, Trump has been claiming without evidence. Trump has claimed without evidence. Baselessly, conspiracy theories, debunked. Right, right. And you've got most people – look, I didn't even look at the um, proof for voter fraud for about a month and a half after the election just because I was busy. I figured, well, I'll get to this eventually. There's nothing I can do about it anyway. And that's the way I think most Americans are. And so they see this, and the Democrats put together a really good montage of videos to try to inculcate – to implicate Trump. And yeah, they were chopped up. Some of them were pulled from the first Stop the Steal rally, and it was all – anyone who had been to the Stop the Steal rallies and had been following politics knew that it was all chopped up in just theater. 
But the average voter doesn't know that. And and this is one ex- instance, in my opinion, Trump the Trump brand through this trial is damaged beyond recovery, and there I is disagree. no there is no Oof. coming back for this. Well, I disagree completely. I think the president is still overwhelmingly popular with the voters, and we're going to see that. The first real test of this is going to be 2022, and if the most important battle in 2022 is not the general election. It's the primaries. It's how many of those 10 Republicans who voted to impeach Trump are going to get primaried out, and subsequently will those primary victors go on to win. But that is why this is hysterical. So then after the trial, McConnell, Mitch McConnell, Senate Minority Leader, Minority Leader now, because Mitch did such a great job with the Georgia runoffs, <laughs> he voted to acquit Trump. But then immediately after, in a floor speech, said, oh, you know, I still think Trump is responsible. He literally explicitly said, I think Trump is responsible for the riot that took place. He hasn't gotten away with anything yet. He basically implied there could be civil lawsuits or something. So then, as of today, February 16th, the office of the former president, Donald J. Trump, released this statement. Quote, the Republican Party can never again be respected or strong with political leaders, in air quotes, leaders like Senator Mitch McConnell on its helm. McConnell's dedication to business as usual, status quo policies, together with his lack of political insight, wisdom, skill, and personality, has rapidly driven him from majority leader to minority leader, and it will only get worse. <laughs> the Democrats and Chuck Schumer play McConnell like a fiddle. They've never had it so good, and they want to keep it that way. We know our America First agenda is a winner, not McConnell's Beltway First agenda or Biden's America Last agenda. Well, see, the McConnell's reaction to the election and the claims of electoral fraud is the same as most Republicans who were were basically enduring the Trump years. Their attitude, they of course they all they all backed other they all backed Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, other primary candidates in 2016. When Trump won the nomination, became the clear nominee. Uh, he won. I think it was Wisconsin was the deciding knockout blow to Ted Cruz. He, Ted, Ted, uh, Indiana. Ted Cruz won Wisconsin in an upset, and then it went to Indiana. Indiana, correct, Indiana yeah. is where Cruz lost and then dropped out. Yeah. So at that point, there was nothing they could do. It was over. So at that point, they had to kind of they had to come up with a cope. It's like, okay, well, let's cope. Yeah, let's try to let's try to coalesce around Trump. This is what we've got. He'll lose to Hillary Clinton. And then in 2020, we'll come back with a stronger, real conservative candidate and defeat Hillary Clinton. Well, Trump upsets Hillary Clinton. Now they're in a bind. It's like, okay, we're stuck with this guy for eight years if we don't want a Democrat to take the hat to to win the White House. Trump loses in 2020, and they all uh, they all breathe the collective sigh of relief. Now, when evidence presents itself of voter fraud, and Trump decides to fight back rather than just rolling over and giving a concession speech like they all wanted. Now they're they're stuck because they can either side with Trump and the majority of Republicans who can clearly see there was fraud or they have to side with the Democrats and claim, no, this was a legitimate election. And really the Capitol riot gave them a way out because they can try to pretend like they're going along with the stop the steal. The Capitol riot happens and the majority of the country turns against the MAGA movement. They're like, okay, yeah, Trump was wrong all along. He should have never claimed there was voter fraud. Even Ted Cruz comes out and says that Trump was too over the top. He was, you know, he was just going too far about the machines and stuff. Which I do agree that Trump should not have believed. I think he was buying into the Sidney Powell narrative. The Sidney Powell stuff that like Venezuela and China were behind it, like that was a little too much. I think I think Trump bought into a lot of that, and that was why some of his rhetoric was over the top. But if you take that out, like I think in the my domestic opinion, actors, the poll workers being so shady. Yeah, and in my Philly, in my like, opinion, I believe from, just from my. I mean, obviously, what do I know? All I can go off is news articles. I believe Joe Biden won Pennsylvania narrowly. I believe he won Arizona. I believe he won Nevada, and I think Trump took Georgia, Wisconsin. And Michigan, which would have put Trump over, I think, by nine Narrowly electoral votes. Ahead. Yeah, he did worse. He uh, even if you take away voter fraud, Trump did worse in 2020 than he did in 2016. Um, but with the McConnells, this is why McConnell is uh, attacking Trump now because this is now we can finally move beyond the Trump era in their minds and get back to Tea Party conservatism, which is something we're going to get into. <laughs> we're going to get into that. But I want our- to read one more passage from uh, the statement that President Trump issued because this ties back into why the 2022 primary battle is going to be so important. Quote. This is from the president, quote, Mitch is a dour, sullen and unsmiling political hack. And if Republican senators are going to stay with him, they will not win again. He will never do what needs to be done or what is right for our country. Where necessary and appropriate, I will back primary rivals who espouse making America great again and our policy of America first, end quote. And the full statement is absolutely incredible, but that was just those were the most important highlights. So clearly the president intends to get involved in the primary battles in 2022. 
obviously in House seats, but also most likely in a couple of Senate seats, like Murkowski, where again, Murkowski is the one who voted for impeachment. She's always been against them. She voted against Obamacare repeal and Kavanaugh and so many others, so she definitely deserves to get primaried out. But yeah, that's the thing. That's the main topic we want to talk about is regardless of Trump, regardless of Donald J. Trump, the man, what is the future of the MAGA movement? So in order to understand that, of course, we have to understand what the MAGA movement is. And I've, I've said this for a while now that you, you brought up the Tea Party, and that, of course, is very relevant. People have compared the MAGA movement to the Tea Party movement in 2010, which, of course, took the country by storm, produced one of the biggest political midterm landslides in American history. The Republicans took over 60 seats in the House, took multiple seats in the Senate. They flipped governorships. They flipped state legislatures so powerfully that the GOP still has the majority of state legislatures across the country, even in the Midwestern states. Even after 2018 and 2020, they still control commanding majorities in key state legislatures in those swing states, even if Biden, quote unquote, won those states. That's primarily due to the victories in 2010 and the redistricting that was done as a result of that. So the Tea Party, I I faintly remember the Tea Party. It was fueled by the passage of Obamacare. That was the thing that triggered the Tea Party movement was opposition to Obamacare. Jacob no, is that's, shaking his that's, head. That's you don't wrong. think so? You disagree? I think, I think you're a little little too young to remember that far back. All right, but either way, either way, from what I understand, I think we can agree on this. The three core issues of the Tea Party when it came out of nowhere was lowering taxes, reducing regulations, and repealing Obamacare. Those were the three main issues. That was its first problem. Its second problem was that there was no face or name or leader behind it. Some people have tried to claim that Ron Paul was like the intellectual godfather of the Tea Party movement, which like, eh, maybe, I don't know. Um, but either way, there was no clear leader. So you take those two things into account. There's no leader, and those three issues, taxes, regulations, Obamacare, those are all, that. all that is is fiscal conservatism, which is already the traditional orthodoxy of the GOP right. establishment. The Paul Ryans, the McConnells, the Marco Rubios, they all supported that already. So, of course, it was easy for Paul Ryan and Marco Rubio to come along and say, oh, yeah, of course, we're a Tea Party. Yeah, we're a Tea Party. And then they take over the Republican Party and they just hijack the Tea Party movement, again, with no resistance from a leader or figurehead because there is none. The MAGA movement is completely different. The MAGA movement is classic paleoconservatism. It's based on three core issues. Cracking down on immigration, legal and illegal, mostly illegal. Fixing bad trade deals, putting the American economy and the American worker first through protectionism and tariffs, and ending overseas interventionism and putting a stop to these stupid endless wars that we have been embroiled in for two decades, thanks to Bush. Those three core issues, which are popular, they're paleocon issues, and some of them are certainly the, the wars one was popular among the Democratic Party until recently. Those three run directly counter to the GOP elite because they have always wanted the cheap labor and lopsided, quote, free trade deals to Mm -hmm. benefit their corporate donors. The corporate donors want the cheap labor coming in from Mexico. They want free trade deals that make it easier to import or cheaper to import goods from China. And, of course, they also have the military industrial complex that they've always wanted to support, you know, whether it's the, the defense contractors, the oil companies, what have you. And, of course, MAGA, unlike Tea Party, the MAGA, the modern America First movement, has one of the biggest, most famous names and also one of the wealthiest names and faces in modern American pop culture. Everybody knew who Donald Trump was. Everyone knows the name Trump. They know from the TV show. They know him from his bombastic personality in the 80s and all his casinos and hotels. So it's much harder to take a movement away. That's why part of it, it's called Trumpism. Half of it is called America First or MAGA, and half people refer to it as Trumpism or the Trump movement. So it's not going to be easy for them to take that movement away from him as long as he is still a factor. So that is the important difference between MAGA and the Tea Party. Uh, I want to go back real quick, Jacob. You said the Tea Party. What was it that you think that you say really caused the Tea Party to happen? Well, the Tea Party uh, jumped on – the Tea Party actually got started before Obamacare was passed. It wasn't – it didn't – he had Tea Party rallies and stuff. Rick Santelli met, gave his his famous speech on CNBC in uh, that might have been December actually of two thousand eight or January of two thousand nine. So it was before the Affordable Care. I think even before Obama even took office, the Tea Party was mainly a response to TARP, the bailout of the banks, the uh, basically corporate welfare, and the rising national debt, which had exploded under Bush. The Obamacare galvanized it. The Obamacare debate just galvanized it and blew it up, whereas beforehand it was mostly libertarians. You had even a lot of uh, a lot of Democrats, a lot of fiscally conservative Democrats who didn't like – thought Obama was too, uh, too fiscally irresponsible. And then the, it was the Obamacare debate that really blew it up in Republican circles. 
The problem, though, is you, like you mentioned, you had the Marco Rubio types, you had the Sarah Palin, like, like Sarah Palin and Glenn Beck, they <laughs> end up spearheading it in 2010 and 2011. And by that point, that's when a lot of the libertarian types and a lot of the conservative Democrats just kind of pulled back and like, okay, this is just a partisan Republican show. Much of whack jobs and crazies, yeah, you know, and Sarah think, Palin. That, that's kind of whenever – because Sarah Palin, she, she's not I – mean, to call her uh, – I mean she was – I guess she was kind of a fellow – she was more of a fellow traveler of the Tea Party. I tea Party adjacent. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily call her a driving force. The same with Glenn Beck. Like he was just a uh, he was just a TV commentator. He, he was, was always like an anti-war libertarian, and then he kind of yeah. Which I mean, I'd be philosophically kind of aligned with the Tea Party. But the, the point is, whenever you had, whenever it became a partisan issue, then it just became it just kind of got folded into the Republican Party. And by 2014, there really was no Tea Party left. You just had no. the Republican Party. And they were still advocate, advocating the same policies they had all they had always advocated. And the Tea Party had like one last hurrah. They, they obviously they kind of led to the creation of the Freedom Caucus, and that was what ultimately got rid of John Boehner. And that was kind of one last stand. I that think, that of the was the, probably their greatest accomplishment. Let's yes. get rid of John Boehner. Although it gave us Paul Ryan, so it was kind of a Napoleon after the French Revolution situation. Yeah, but see, the thing is, the reason why the Tea Party never really took off is because most Americans aren't that fiscally conservative, and this is just this no. is just reality. Like. Uh, the Barry Goldwater. This is an article I read in American Greatness. Um, uh, uh, they were trying to say a lot of historians of the conservative movement try to claim that Reagan succeeded where Goldwater failed uh, because he advocated. I don't know. Maybe he repackaged the, the he repackaged Goldwater's message a little bit more tightly. But the reality is, most Americans in the '60s and the '80s weren't that fiscally conservative. Reagan was a New Deal Democrat. And he never really, like he said famously, "I never left the Democratic Party. The Democratic, the Democratic Party, Party left me." me. Here's the reality. Most Americans, they don't want low regulations and uh, you know a low national debt. They don't really care much about that. They want that. government to take care of them. They want – right. The people – free money is popular. Giving away free stuff is popular, and this is why the Democrats won Georgia. As funny as I saw this graph, I think it was uh, Ike Cernovich that actually put out a graph of where Republican voters are on the ideological spectrum, and he said – he tweeted, this is where Republican voters are if the GOP ever wants to start winning elections again. And you have way up in the left-hand corner at the very top. That's where Repu- – we're actually in the center at the very top. They're socially conservative, fiscally liberal. That's where most Republican voters are. The donor class and the political operatives in the GOP, they're way down the right-hand corner. They're socially liberal, fiscally conservative. conservative. That's not where the voters are. That's not that's where libertari- the masses are. That's, that's libertarian. That's the literal definition of libertarianism, and that was the meme for so many years. Oh, Americans are fiscally conservative but socially liberal. They want gay marriage. They want legalized weed when no, that they really didn't. That Remember in 2008 – I remember that in 2008, the same year Obama gets elected – California voted by a four-point margin, the same margin as Brexit, to outlaw gay marriage yep. mm-hmm. in 2008. And this is why this is why when Trump comes along and he he Trump was right where most Ameri- most conservative Americans are. In fact, I would say where about 55 percent of the country is. He was socially moderate and he was willing to make concessions to the social conservatives, but he was fiscally moderate as well. He was more fiscally, even slightly left of center on some issues. And this is where the this is this is the difference. This is the fundamental difference between the America First agenda and the America First movement and the Tea Party movement. A lot of people like to make the comparison, but really the only comparison is that a lot of, you had a lot of Republican voters who voted for the Tea Party candidates because, well, they didn't want Obamacare and they didn't want Democrats, and they voted for Trump because, well, they didn't want Democrats. So yeah, there was some overlap in the voters, but as far as the messaging goes, the message is different. Very they're, different. They're, they are not the same. In fact, I remember, of course, being uh, you know being young and <laughs> idealistic at the time, I was all on board with the Tea Party. I remember when Trump gave his speech in the, in Las Vegas in April of twenty. 11, his first political speech when he was considering jumping into the fray in 2012, I remember thinking, if this, if Trump ever got the nomination, I wouldn't vote Republican. This guy's an idiot. I was thinking, there's nothing that he stands for that in any way matches the Tea Party. Like that, we're the Tea Party was gaining momentum. We were fixing it. it. Looked like we might get a Tea Party candidate into the White House in 2012. I'm thinking Trump is the exact opposite of the Tea Party. Why are people cheering for what he's saying? And that's why he didn't run in 2012. The timing wasn't right. The Republican Party and the voters weren't quite where he was at that point. And but, I think he also knew that no Republican candidate was going to beat the coalition Obama had built. Obama just built a really good coalition that even though he lost about 4 million votes from 2008, he still won resoundingly and he knew like even that he Donald Trump would not beat Obama. I, I think that may also be a factor as well. Well, I don't I, I you know, Trump famously said, "Well, if I had run, I would have won." I don't think he would well, have gotten the nomination. That's the bluster he said. Of course well, he's going to say that. Well, he like, was talking about the Republican nomination. I would have won right. the Republican nomination. I don't think he would have gotten the nomination in 20 
2012. He mm-hmm. had, had thrown his hat in the ring, and so uh, you know Trump is the kind of he's gonna if he's gonna draw a sword, he wants to make sure it's a battle he can win. Right. And I think he read the mood of Republican of the Republican Party at the time. He knew they weren't quite ready. Mm-hmm. But uh, so you you touched on some of the differences between the old Republican Party and the and Trump's agenda or the America First agenda. So let's let's hit on some of the some of the major. Let's let's start with foreign policy. So this is one, and this this is going to tie into some of the because we do want to talk about some of the internal weaknesses of the of the Republican of the MAGA, the, the MAGA movement, movement where it went wrong, as it were. Right, right, right. And why, why it's no longer in power. So let's let's double back to the old Republican Party, the Boomers, the Boomer Cons. They came of age in a time when the Republican Party had adopted. The conservatism of William F. Buckley. William F. Buckley was the intellectual godfather of the Reagan era and the Republican Party. And that party, that movement was based on three principles. In fact, Rush Limbaugh calls this the three – he calls it the, the three-legged stool of conservatism. That was – remember, it's the Cold War, so that was a strong national defense and a very aggressive foreign policy, a very forward-thinking foreign policy. Uh, that we now associate with neoconservatism. But it wasn't known as neoconservatism at the time because right. we were still in the Cold War. Most Americans, whether they were on the left or the right, if they were patriotic, they supported a large military and a strong national defense to make sure we kept the Soviets in check. That's why it made sense to go into Korea and Vietnam because obviously you know, we have to go to war to show the Soviets that we can play ball too. Correct. And intervention in Latin America made sense to a lot of people because you can't have communist countries developing in Central and South America who can be supplied with arms from the Soviet Union, you get you don't want a bunch of Cubas. That was the fear. That was why intervening um, against the Sandinistas in Nicaragua was supported by the American people. That's why jumping into Panama, jumping into I think it was Haiti. There were a bunch of other little interventions that we made that was supported because people saw it as a as a preemptive measure of self defense. So a strong national defense that was the first leg of the stool. The second leg of the stool was fiscal conservatism. This is a this is a feature of the Republican Party. If you go back to the the Roosevelt era, when William Howard Taft became president, he tightened the belt of the Roosevelt era. He pushed the party to the right on fiscal issues, and the Republican Party remained fiscally conservative through the 1920s and through World War II. And, of course, Robert Taft, he was the called Mr. Republican. He was a staunch fiscal conservative. He wanted low taxes, low regulations, keep the debt low. Uh, pro-business, that type of uh, that type of conservatism. So that was a feature that had gone back over 70, 80 years with the Republican Party, fiscal conservatism. Okay, the third stool was social conservatism. This is the America was facing the backlash to the 19, the radical 1960s. So you had social conservatives that were gaining momentum, and this is really an apolitical movement, but they were really pushing back on the social front to restore traditional Christian values to America. So the Republican Party, in order to get those voters, a lot of those voters were actually Democrats. They were had actually been, especially in the South, they were registered Democrats. So in order to get those voters into the Republican Party to vote Republican, the Republican Party had to adopt social conservatism. So moving post-Cold uh, post War, those baby boomers, they continued to have that mindset throughout the 90s and throughout the 2000s, which is why they supported George W. Bush in the Iraq War and why they became so hawkish against Islamic countries. So when Trump comes on the scene, you've still got baby boomers who make up, I would say, at least a plurality of the Republican Party. Sounds about right. So they've still got – they're still extremely hawkish on Islam. Islam has now taken the place of the Soviet Union. We're now in a Cold War against Islam. Rudy Giuliani was kind of like the Donald Trump of the 2008 primaries. He was the – except – and when I say the Donald Trump, what I mean by that is the bombastic tone he took. But he took that bombastic tone against Islam. He didn't talk about immigration. He didn't talk about anything that had anything to do with the Donald Trump America First movement. His big thing was we've got to treat Islam the way I treated the gangsters when I was mayor of New York. And of course, he got he was wildly applauded on stage. He was the big darling of the of the of the hawkish right. And it was actually Rudy Giuliani that propelled Ron Paul to center stardom because he got into a spat with Ron Paul, and <laughs> Ron Paul just ate his lunch on the Iraq War situation. And but at the time, this is what people wanted. Like John McCain's the hawk. He gets he gets the you know he get he gets uh, he's going to stop the the Arab Obama like the old lady. I don't know if you saw the clip, but she's like, "Don't elect Obama. He's an Arab." <laughs> but this was the mentality. People were so people they had grown up in the Cold War when they had to hide under desks to hide from the potential Soviet bombs, and they just translated that mentality over to Islam. 
So Trump comes on the scene, and he's advocating for America first. He wanted to return the Republican Party to the, pre, uh, the pre-World War II era. And this is the biggest – and it, uh, this is really the biggest accomplishment of Donald Trump is that he pulled so many hawks away from the let's just go bomb the Middle East. That was basically their whole ideology to let's focus on building America up. You know, let's focus on these hollowed out areas of America. Let's focus on domestic policy. American infrastructure. Like that's one more thing too that was said about Trump. Like as you said, you know, he kind of clashed with the Tea Party in that 2011 Las Vegas speech. He said – he was the one Republican candidate for the first time in a long time who dared to come along and say, oh yeah, Social Security, Medicare? I'm not going to touch that. Why would I? You know, let people keep it. And he even – one of the more specific policy ideas he suggested that unfortunately never came to pass was an infrastructure bill. He said, I want to pass – my equivalent of Obama's stimulus bill, I want to pass a $1 trillion infrastructure bill to focus on American bridges, highways, tunnels, airports. I want to rebuild America's infrastructure with just a fraction of the money that we wasted in the Middle Eastern wars. Unfortunately, that never came to be. Steve Bannon told a bit of that story in his interview with uh, Charlie Rose on 60 Minutes. But he, yeah, he was totally fine with more government spending. Obviously, he was willing to sign the coronavirus bill, the stimulus bills, the, mm-hmm. uh, the $2,000 checks, which you see so many conservatives. I see there was one social media commenter. I saw who unironically kept obsessively referring to Trump as the biggest socialist in American history. He signed these big coronavirus stimulus bills, which was just socialism. And I'm like, all right, so government spending is just socialism, bro. All government spending is socialism. So what do you say about all the spending on uh, defense of the Middle Eastern wars? Right. Is, is that not socialism? It's especially considering these bills were to give $2,000 of taxpayer money back to the taxpayers. You're just giving them back their money to help them at a time when most state governments are crushing their livelihoods. It makes perfect sense. I think it was Thomas Massey. It might have been Thomas Massey. I could be wrong, but it was, it was some I be hawkish surprised. Republican fiscal conservative that argued that instead of the government cutting checks to people when after the coronavirus hit, the government should instead just give people a five hundred dollar loan. Just give everyone, offer oh everyone a five hundred dollar loan. He's a quasi libertarian. <laughs> Make so I'm not them pay it back. You know, it's just oh. so. We've covered uh, – we got the foreign policy that's that's different, uh, very different. I mean after the Cold War was over, the paleoconservatives led by Pat Buchanan, their idea was, OK, we fought the Cold War. We built up the military to defeat the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is defeated, and just like in any war, you don't keep the military around. You cut the military spending. You get people back employed into the civilian workforce. You don't need all these government contractors. You don't need all this because any during any war, you're always going to have a lot of corruption. It doesn't matter how righteous the cause is. Anytime you fight a war, there's always going to be massive government corruption. There's going to be massive kickbacks, and this is just a necessary evil of winning a war for survival. Once the war is over, though, you want to get rid of those necessary evils. You don't want to keep them around. You don't want to keep these government contractors fat and sassy. You want to get you want to cut them out and get those employees into the private sector so you can build up the private sector. And this was the paleoconservative position on foreign policy that. Unfortunately, the, they were able, you know, the the neoconservatives, they were able to con most boomers into supporting, uh, to basically just switching the enemy from communism to Islam. They used an appeal to patriotism. They basically said, "Oh, if you love America, if you love the troops, then you'll support going to war and blowing those terrorists." And it's up. the same. And it, it it really, and you kept hearing people say, "Well, if you don't go fight them over there, we got to fight them over here." And it it's like, where's over there? And it's like, I don't remember which. Uh, I think it was. Let me remember that country singer who sang that song. Right after 9-11, um, but one of the lyrics is you, – you probably uh, recognize it. I don't know the di- – I'm just a simple man. I don't know the difference between you – know, Iraq between, and Iran. I don't know the difference between Iraq and Iran. The difference kind of matters now, yeah, doesn't the, it? The difference is, is huge when you're going to send American soldiers to die and kill. It's kind of a big deal, but – uh, yeah, yeah, but that's just that. Unfortunately, that was just the you know most Americans. They came up in the eighties and nineties. They came up in the seventies. Everything was prosperous. They didn't need to learn education. You know, they didn't need to learn geography or history. In whenever the president says, "Hey, we're going to war. We need you to defend the country." Okay, sign me up. I'll, I'll go fight. Who do you who do you need me to kill? It's that that attitude. That's Alan Jackson, by the way. Where were you in the world? Alan Jackson. Yeah, great. It's a good song, but yeah, it, a few it's, problematic it's a good lyrics. patriotic song. But unfortunately, this is how patriotism was channeled after nine eleven. It was channeled in service of the massive you know Washington bureaucracy and it's funny a lot of those people unfortunately you know it took them about 15 years 15 to 20 years to realize hey wait a minute everything we built up after 9/11 is now turn it's now turning it's like we built this huge gun and it's now turning around and facing it at us because now they're talking about having a commission on the January 6th riot similar to the 9/11 commission they want a domestic Patriot Act that's going to target American citizens. You know, it was okay when we were doing this to those Islamic terrorists. It's okay to have a Patriot Act then. It's okay to drone strike a literal American citizen, right. Anwar al Awlaki. Yeah, Anwar al Awlaki, American citizen and his nephew. You had conservatives cheering this. 
you know, normally they're against anything Obama does. Obama drone strikes an American citizen. That's right. Kill that, you know, kill that Muslim terrorist. Well, Which I American- kind of – I almost understand because, yeah, he was literally a right-hand man in al-Qaeda. He, I think he did renounce his citizenship actually. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. I kind of get it, but, but at the his, same time – But his crime was propaganda. So think about it. His, his crime was propaganda, and if you turn that around to the, on the domestic front, this right. would be the equivalent of them saying – and in fact, there was a, a MSNBC host who said she wants drone strikes at these domestic yep. terrorists. Yep. This would be the equivalent of saying, OK, Lynn Wood was saying – Lynn Wood wrote on Parlay that he wanted Mike, Mike Pence, Pence to be executed, executed by firing squad. OK. Well, by that logic, Lynn Wood and his family, they get droned. This is this is where this leads. Mm-hmm. If you if you develop enough fear in the American population toward another group of people, they're going to justify killing that group of people with drone strikes, just like they justified killing Muslims, radical Muslims with drone strikes and denying them due process. And this is the Leviathan that American conservatives were conned using their patriotism against them were conned mm-hmm. into supporting. So this is the fundamental difference between the America First movement and the Republican Party of George W. Bush on the foreign policy front, like you point out on fiscal conservatism, yeah, you know the Republican Party lost to FDR for a reason. They a long time ago, to Lyndon yeah. B. Johnson for a reason, mm-hmm. and it's because free money is popular. If we're going to spend money, let's spend it on our people. So this is an area where fiscal hawks are just going to have to take a back seat. The third stool, social conservatism. This is an area where Donald Trump absolutely wiped the floor. By not even being a social conservative, people will point and say, well, look at his personal life. He's been divorced. How do Christians support Donald Trump? Mm-hmm. You know, he's this and that. He's, he's got a foul mouth. But at the end of the day, policy matters than person, uh, more than personality. And if he's going to he's going to put pro-life judges on the courts, Christians are going to support that. He's going to implement policies that protect religious freedom. People of faith are going to support that. And this is why this is so huge. People And uh, Tucker Carlson wrote a fantastic article in January of 2016 on why so many Christians were supporting Trump. And he said most evangelical Christians have given up on getting one of their own in the White House. They see how they see where the left is going on the religious front, and they want a bodyguard, and they see Trump as a bodyguard. And if you want to get common everyday people to show up in droves and vote by the tens of millions for your candidate, you've got to provide a bodyguard to uh, against the left that wants to encroach on religious freedom. Exactly. And it's that's the thing, too, going back to what we said earlier, that there was this meme for the longest time. Oh, no, no. Most Americans are actually socially liberal. They're fiscally conservative. No, no. It was the other way around. Yeah, a lot exactly. of them, especially working class Democrat voters, blue collar workers, the disgruntled former Democrats who maybe had not even voted in a long time, who turned around and voted for Trump in 2016. A lot of them are, yeah, they're union members, but they still they have families. They have family values. A lot of them go to church. Quite a few of them own guns. They are socially conservative or at least more middle of the road. They're not liberal. So appealing to those guys saying, yeah, I'm going to protect your religious freedom. I'm going to protect your gun rights. But I'm also not going to touch your unions. I'm not going to touch your welfare like that. Or your social security. Exactly. That appeals directly to those people. They're former Democrats for a reason, right? So Trump put together that coalition through this very careful balance of anti-interventionism, being relaxed on social spending or government spending, Cracking down on immigration, which was also a big part of the economic appeal to them, is because immigration disproportionately affects these already suffering communities, these mm-hmm. working class communities in the Rust Belt. And it also certainly affected the the Hispanic community, the Latino community that is here in the United States. This was something that was very interesting that I had to point out. Just one example is that people point to the fact that Trump did do very well among all minority communities in 2020 compared to his 2016 results. He did better among African-Americans and he did better among Latino Americans. Now, of course, Biden still wins the overall national Latino vote. But, Jacob, you actually made an interesting point the other day off the air that if that that, that number, kind of like the national popular vote, it's totally skewed by California, by California Hispanics, who are right, mostly right. Mexicans who are first or second generation, lots of them illegals or you know came here as a result of illegals. So, of course, they're going to vote for the amnesty party. They're going to vote no matter what. Whereas Latinos who are more – who are based here in America, who are actually Native Americans who have been here for generations on end, do identify more with America than with their Hispanic heritage, than with the, their race as it were. And you saw this in Texas. There was one county that Trump flipped in, in Zapata County. This county is on the border. It's located on the border of Texas towards the very southern tip. It's an overwhelmingly Hispanic county. It had not been won by a Republican since Warren Harding in 1920. 
Trump lost this county by 33 points in 2016 to Hillary Clinton. He then won it by five points against Joe Biden in 2020. That's a 38-point swing. And it's not a coincidence that that county is right there on the border. People say that Trump's last year in office might have been the year that did him in, that it was the, it was the worst uh, year of his presidency. But it was certainly the virus and the riots and whatnot. But it was definitely the best year of his presidency in the area of immigration because, for better or for worse, he used the virus as an excuse on top of the national emergency he already declared in the last year of January 2019. He used the virus as an excuse to completely shut down immigration, legal and illegal. And those positive effects were seen in the last year of his presidency. And you look at Florida. Uh, Florida is another example. Everyone was predicting that Florida would go blue permanently once the Puerto Ricans flooded in from Hurricane Maria, but the exact opposite. That happened. did not happen. Yeah, there were there were over a hundred thousand Puerto Ricans who, by the way, can vote. They don't they don't have to switch their uh, they don't have to become citizens. They're already citizens, so they move to the continent. They can vote in the president, uh, presidential elections. Over a hundred uh, thousand of them moved to Florida, and Trump wins Florida by an even larger margin than he won it in twenty sixteen. So. One thing that we've got to look at when we look at the immigration platform, that is an, that is a platform that transcends fiscal and social conservatism, and it's an area that is not necessarily a losing issue with Latino voters. And this not is, at all. No, I remember at a town hall article. I don't remember who wrote it, but it was right after the 2012 election. People were looking at the exit poll numbers, and they were saying that Republicans going forward are going to have to pick their battles very, very carefully with immigration because most of these Hispanic voters – they support more immigration. They don't they want, want amnesty. They want yeah. amnesty. They don't want um, illegal immigrants deported. So Republicans are going to, have to be very, very careful. Well, you got to remember the reason for that is because a lot of those were not assimilated Hispanics. They had U.S. citizenship after after four years. Well, after eight years, but from 2012 to 2020, a lot of those His- Americans of Hispanic descent. Eight years have gone on. They've meanwhile they've bought a house. They've increased their income. They're living the American dream. And they're starting to feel a lot more American. So when they're they understand now that, and especially since the argument has been made to them that if we open up the borders and allow more immigration, those immigrants are going to directly affect you. They're going to affect you negatively economically. They're going to affect your kids negatively economically by increasing the labor pool. They're going to drive wages down. They're going to make it harder for American citizens to get jobs. It doesn't matter what your ancestry is. They're going to you're going to be hurt the same way as people whose ancestors go back to the 1600s. And that's not even taking into account the crime that they bring with them. Correct. Certainly, look at the sanctuary cities like that are MS-13. just MS-13. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, Kate I, Steinle, everybody, never forget. Except. Okay, so we want to talk about the internal disadvantages within the current Trump uh, coalition. One of the first things that's uh, that's really messed up is a lot of. Misinformation has been going out to Trump voters for the simple reason that we don't have a news media that serves all of the people. We have a news media that serves Democratic voters and some of the old Jeb Bush types of Republicans. This new, The mainstream news media is actively hostile to the takeover that Donald Trump made to the Republican Party. This news media, the, the mainstream media, they want a duopoly. It's not that they want a one-party system. They want a duopoly in which the Republican Party stands for the values of the Bushes. They want Bush, the Bushes to take their party back. So this has caused a lot of Republicans, and we've talked about this before, a lot of Republicans are having to flock to alternative news sources to get information from. So a lot of these news sources are promoting conspiracy theories. They don't have – you know, they're, they're leading people into, into traps like happened on January 6th, into huge PR traps. And one of the things that's got to happen is people on the right have got – that we have got to have more civic education because one thing that the left and the right agree on is the education system in this country is pretty terrible when it comes to educating people on American history, American civics. In fact, I spoke to one high school teacher when I was in, when I was in college and he said because of Common Core, they had reduced civics education to one week. Whenever they, they had one week to talk about the Constitution and how it set up the differences between the you know, branches of government. That's why you have people in their 50s who they don't know what the difference between the House of Representatives and the Senate is. Um, so, far too many Americans right now could not pass a U.S. citizenship test. Correct. And you can't have – this is a limit on any movement. It doesn't – even if you do break it down to simple terms like Trump does – Going forward is difficult because if people don't understand how the government works, eventually once a Trump is out of the way, because right now they're just following the person, you know, they're following Trump the man. Once Trump the man is out of the way, if they don't understand how government works, they don't understand how the system works, they're eventually just going to throw up their hands and say, okay, I'm not going to vote. I'm just going to stay home. They're just going to go back to what they did beforehand. 
And again, with the voter fraud that happened in 2020, that kind of dis- – that reluctance to vote again is understandable coupled mm-hmm. with obviously the lack of civic education it's understandable right so if the if the right this is when this is a huge internal disadvantage that if people who want the america first movement to move forward have to confront the the stereotype of republican voters being uneducated dumb hicks is not entirely wrong when you look at the education attainment of democrats and compare that to republicans democrats have a massive advantage among college-educated voters. Now, that doesn't mean that Democrats have a higher IQ than Republicans or people with a high IQ automatically become Democrats. It's it means just, they obviously have a better grip on students who have been indoctrinated for four years well, on you that, know, leftism. That's true. That is true. But a lot of Democrats go into the humanities. So they read a lot more books than Republicans do because Republicans go into areas that don't require a lot of book knowledge. They'll go into areas – you know, they, they do their book – like I know a lot of Republicans that are nurses, a lot of Republicans that become doctors. They cram all of their book learning – and the, you know the eight years it takes to get their degree, and then they're done. They don't want to. They don't want to become nerds. After they just want to focus on their families, focus on their careers, and they want to focus on their leisure. Democrats are the exact opposite. They make their. They go into professions that requires a lifetime of learning. Now, unfortunately, a lot of their book reading is just in their own little echo chamber. But it does show that there is a huge gap between the civics knowledge of Democrats and the civics knowledge of Republicans. And if the Republican Party is going to move the America First agenda forward. Or I should say if the America First agenda is going to take over the Republican Party and eventually take over the country, they have to close that gap. All right. Another area is this because of the lack of civics education, they are prone to entertaining cults of personality. Like I mentioned, they were all on board. A lot of the same voters who voted for Trump were all on board with Rudy Giuliani in 2008, even though they were spouting exact opposite messages. A lot of those voters, they have their cognitive dissonance. They haven't really made the connection that, you know, I supported the Iraq war. And now I support Donald Trump. I was wrong for supporting the Iraq war. No, it's just I supported George W. Bush to stop socialist, communistic Democrats. Now I support Donald Trump to stop the socialistic, communistic Democrats. And that's not helpful. That doesn't actually help the America first agenda make the Republican Party America first if they're just supporting the Republicans to stop the socialistic, communistic Democrats. So any cult of personality can develop. You could have a one-eyed bandit in Texas take over the Republican Party by spouting Trump talking points. He could just be very entertaining. He could get out there and just bash Democrats. He could, it's like Marjorie Taylor Greene. She gets all this support from Trump supporters because she calls Nancy Pelosi a bitch. She gets all this support from Trump supporters because she hammers the Democrats. Okay, well, attacking Democrats is fun. It's entertaining, and it's definitely something that should be done often. But once you get past the partisan tribalism, if there's no serious ideological shift among Republicans from a George W. Bush Republican Party to a Donald Trump slash Pat Buchanan Republican Party, then, you know, you're kind of missing the point. And lastly, one of the uh, one of the biggest disadvantages is is income. Not only is there a huge civics education disparity between Democrats and Republicans, there's a huge income disparity. Most Democratic uh, – the counties is like two-thirds of counties in the top income percentage of the country voted for Clinton as opposed to one-third in the top income percentage that voted for Trump. And it's just the way the – you know we've hollowed out middle America. We've shipped a lot of the jobs overseas. So non-college educated voters really don't have the opportunity to close that income gap. This is an area where if the America First agenda really wants to be able to take over the Republican Party, they're going to have to educate voters not just on civics but also on economics. They've got you got to develop a parallel, almost a parallel economy and find ways to help Republicans, lower income Republicans, increase their knowledge of government, increase their knowledge of the system so they believe they can understand how the system works, so they can take over it. But you've also got to help them Increase their knowledge of finances, you know, financial responsibility. This is something that really needs to be invested in. And, I, you know, I understand obviously there is a very clear-cut conspiracy to stop this from happening. Like I mentioned, there was a Facebook group started by conservatives to help conservatives learn how to invest in the stock market, and Facebook shut it down. They, they shut down the group because they don't want – obviously they don't want these poor, low-income, you know, low low-earning voters – making money because then they're going to be able to compete with their corporate power. But that's lastly, that's just that that is a serious internal disadvantage when you have such a huge income gap. And then, of course, that's not even taking into account the external disadvantage we have to face, which on top of everything, on top of all the the dysfunction or the problems that may plague any possible coalition behind an America First or MAGA movement is you've got even if we had a perfectly united America First movement, 
that's intellectually driven. We've got all the capital we can use. We've got all the packs, and we've got all kinds of money and donor money all lining up behind us. You still have all the insta- the major institutions in the country working against us, whether it's the corporations, whether it's Hollywood, big tech, banks, Wall Street, the deep state, foreign donors, the international lobby, you name it, the, the bureaucracy, the deep state. They are all working against us, and that obviously is a pretty – Powerful beast to overcome. Trump was able to narrowly do it in 2016. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to overcome it and voter fraud in 2020. So we have to find out a way to come up with a plan to take down that Leviathan as well. Republicans do need to focus more on local issues and taking over local Republican parties, taking over local city councils, you know, focusing on the sheriff's races. District attorneys. District attorneys, yeah. District attorneys and sheriff's races are huge when it comes to protecting civil liberties. You know, if, if Republicans are afraid that of, of what Democrats – Democrats are going to trample their civil liberty, liberties, they need to focus a lot less on the national politics and focus a lot more on their local district attorney races and their local sheriff races. Because let's say there was a bill passed by Congress assigned by the president to outlaw AR-15s, just completely confiscate them. Well, if all of the sheriffs are controlled by Republicans who basically take the stance over my dead body – that bill is dead on arrival. The president can sign it all he wants. The sheriffs aren't going to enforce it. And in fact, the sheriffs will arrest anyone who tries to enforce it. It's very simple. They could just send – they could they could put the president on notice. If you send any DHS officials into my county, I'm going to arrest them on spot and hold them without bail. Do exactly what they do with sanctuary cities. Right. They would have to – you would have to have – you really need a movement on the right to take over the DA offices, take over the sheriff's offices and treat American citizens as well as liberal cities treat their illegal aliens. You need the same kind of protection, you know, almost like the flock, like we're going to protect our flock. You need that type of mentality from local sheriffs and district attorney's offices that you get in San Francisco for illegal immigrants. You need to pro- another way is you need to promote civic education, financial and skills education, and you need to we need to decentralize the right. It, it's really it really is helpful actually that Fox News has been dethroned because one of the ways that they were able to keep Republicans in line during the Iraq War was through Fox News. They had the, you know, everyone, all Republicans watched Fox News, so Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity. They were like the high priest of the Republican Party. If they supported the Iraq War, everyone else supported the Iraq War. Now it would be much harder to do that because you've got a lot of competition. So decentralization is huge to making sure that the America First agenda takes over the Republican Party. And lastly, Republicans have got to get away from – and I mentioned this with Marjorie Taylor Greene. They've got to get away from their hatred of Democrats. You know, if you're going to take over the country, you got to understand. You got to first of all come to the realization that we are never going to be a three-party state. We are always going to be a two-party state. There's always going to be Republicans. There's always going to be Democrats. It's just the way it is. Trump understood this himself. You know, when he ran in 2000, he ran with the Reform Party for a little bit before he realized, yeah, this is not going to work. You have to take over one of the two parties if you're going to be successful. Right, right. And even after you take over one of the two parties, you still got to work with the other party. This is the thing. Reagan was able to work with Democrats when he was president. He had a Democratic majority throughout all eight years of his presidency. He didn't have a complete stalemate. He was able to get things passed, able to pass a conservative agenda because he was able to work across the aisle. This is something Republicans have to understand. Hatred of Democrat. Democrats are not the enemy. You've got to look at the enemy in ideological terms, not partisan terms. And that, in that sense, certainly I will say, of course, some Democrats are the enemy, like the rising AOC wing that literally just wants to burn America to the ground. Like obviously that's the enemy. But that's ideological. Oh, that's ideological, what? yes. But I mean obviously – OK, yeah, you can't say – Democrats as a whole, like the party, because there are some, I guess, a handful of good Democrats like Joe Manchin. But by and large, the Democratic Party, as it has become now, I think I'm actually going to disagree with you on that one because we already know for a fact that Democrats see the Republicans as the enemy. They're talking about labeling Trump voters as terrorists. So I think to a certain extent, if we are going to fight back on the same cultural terms, we should see the Democratic Party as it has become now as the enemy because they are pushing this Green New Deal nonsense. They're pushing this race theory stuff. They're pushing this anti-American revisionist history. Well, so. again, that's the reason why they're pushing that is because the culture led with that. The parties will always follow the culture. If you change the culture, then no Democrat is going to run on any of that stuff because they all understand that the, that's not what the voters want. The only reason why the Democratic Party is pushing that stuff is because they feel like that's what the voters want and that if they want to win in their districts, they have to run on that stuff because the voters in their districts have been you know, pushed into that culture. So it, you know, and also rank and file Democrats. Most of them they don't believe in all that stuff. So if you just attack their party, they're gonna you're gonna turn them off. If you want to actually win them over, you can't. Uh, you gotta attack the ideology, not their party. So I'll let you explain how we can overcome some of these external factors that you mentioned. That even if we had a united America First movement, we would still face. 
All right. Well, because obviously the institutions are a big problem, and a lot of these institutions are the result of our capitalist economy. For 50 years, we were the pro-capitalist country. We were America. We were the land of free markets because obviously we were going to be the opposite of the Soviet Union and their communists. So we support it. We support corporations and we support the free market as it were. But now the Cold War is over, and where has capitalism, completely unbridled capitalism, led us? It's led us to these ultra-powerful corporations that overwhelmingly donate to left-wing causes and to Democratic candidates. And you have big tech monopolies that have gotten so big and powerful, they control each of their respective slices of the social media sphere, and they are run by left-wing lunatics. And they censor anybody who simply has a conservative opinion. So we need to realize, as easy as it is to just throw the socialism attack out there— Calling them socialists is only going to work for a little while. It's like crying wolf. You know, it's going to work for a little while. You can point to certain policies that may very well kind of technically fall under a definition of socialism, like, say, Obamacare. But at the end of the day, just calling them socialists over and over again is eventually going to get old, especially when the Republican Party will not address the issues that we face right now as a result of our capitalist system. And some people say, oh, well, that's not really capitalist. That's corporatism. Well, okay, our capitalist system led to this corporatism being a problem in the first place. So we should be against most corporations at this point, whether it's McDonald's or Walmart or any other corporation that tweeted out the Black Power Fist or hashtag Black Lives Matter or the rainbow flag or donated overwhelmingly to Democrats or to Joe Biden over Trump. They are clearly not on our side when they are also pushing. They push these messages that will not affect their bottom line. I said this in one of our very first episodes, I think, that these corporations did not care if a couple of their franchise locations got burned down in the race riots last year. Because McDonald's is not going to shut down when a couple locations in in Minneapolis get burned to the ground. Whereas the mom and pop shop, the little grocery store, the little dry cleaner that is burned to the ground, that business isn't coming back. And, of course, McDonald's doesn't care because, eh, we'll probably just buy that property where that mom-and-pop shop was and we'll put one of our own there. So we should be more openly against corporations that will not explicitly support us. There's a few out there that are okay, like Bernie Marcus of Home Depot and a few others that are on our side. And Home Depot is not out there pushing this stuff openly. But by and large, corporations are not on our side until we make them be on our side. So until then, we need to create our own parallel conservative infrastructure economically uh, in terms of our technology, we need to create our own. You're already seeing this with social media alternatives. We have Gab. We have BitChute. We have Rumble. We have Minds. We have these social media alternatives that are well-designed, that, that work well, they function well, and they are great alternatives to Twitter, which is just a left-wing cesspool at this point, to YouTube, which is just going to ban everybody that dares question the election, like this video is going to have to be edited for the YouTube release. Again, that's why we're doing that. So check out the full versions at BitChute and Rumble.com. And we need to even go so far as our own conservative entertainment, our own conservative higher education, conservative schools, whether it's you know Liberty University or Hillsdale or others, conservative banking if need be, because you've heard of banks literally shutting down people's accounts. Deutsche Bank actually shut down all of its accounts with the Trump organization after uh, the 2020 election. And I know most people say conservative movies are kind of cringe. Okay, some of them are, but until we have our own conservative Hollywood – what else are we going to do, right? You know, they don't even have to be conservative movies. They can just be normal movies without any SJW propaganda. Just, exactly. Just make normal yeah. movies. So movies as they were 20 years ago. Right. So right. we need to be prepared to I, – I don't know. I mean you call it a parallel ecosystem or a parallel infrastructure. Call it you know a conservative ghetto, if you will, basically making the conservative ghettos our own. Whatever you call it, we have to do that if we are going to survive because uh, because you know the institutions that are overseeing our society right now are not going to help us. So if we're going to so to sum it all up, Donald Trump is I I don't think that he's going to run in 2024 just because I, I think he's going to be so happy to be away from it and just be able to you know be on the sidelines. I do think that he's going to play the role of kingmaker though in 2022 as, as long as he continues to stay active. But that the people who voted for Donald Trump because of his policies and not just because of his personality want to be able to take over the Republican Party and kick the Liz Cheney's out, kick the Mitch McConnell's out, kick all the all the Lindsey Graham's out. If they really if they actually want to de-neocon the Republican Party and return the Republican Party to its social conservative, fiscal conservative. Well, when I say fiscal conservative, what I mean by that is basically non-corporatist pro-actual free market origins. 
if they actually want to return the Republican Party to a an America first agenda, then they're going to have to make the future of the Republican Party about positions and ideology and not just about Donald Trump, the man. They're going to have to take Donald Trump's example and his positions and translate that into the Republican Party and basically create a hydra whereby – so you have five different new Trumps. The media chops off one Trump, so you got five more that you know sprout up in its place, all guided by the same ideology. So they're going to have to take Donald Trump, the man, and take his – turn it into – the Trump agenda if they really want to move the party forward in a Trumpist direction. And lastly, this this nonsense about having a third party like we talked about, we've talked about before, the American system is designed in such a way where a third party simply cannot win. Anytime we, we started out with two parties at our founding, anytime a third party actually did become viable, they simply pushed one of the two parties out and took over as the number two in the two-party system. We are a two-party system. As long as our constitution remains intact, we will continue to be a two-party system, and we're going to have to accept that. Whether we like the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, we are going to continue to be a two-party system. So if America first, American patriots want to actually move the government in a, in a, in a direction that benefits American citizens and not the global elites, they're going to have to take over one of the two parties. The Democratic Party is completely beholden to people who are internationalists. So that's obviously out of play. They're going to have to take over the Republican Party. And so that eventually what's going to happen is people will have a choice. Do I want to vote for Democrats or do I want to vote for the party of America first? If they hate Democrats enough, they're going to have no choice but to vote for the party of America first. So that's and that's how you eventually pull fair minded patriotic Democrats over to your side by becoming the only alternative. All right, and that is all the time we have left today for this very special episode of The Right Take. Be sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms and podcast hosting services. You can find a list of these websites at our website, righttakepodcast.com slash contact. We are on the YouTube alternatives that actually care about freedom of expression, BitChute and Rumble. We are on the Twitter alternative, Gab. We are on the Facebook alternative, Minds. And we can be found on many podcast platforms, including Google Podcasts and so many others, wherever podcasts are available. You can subscribe to our base podcast feed at Podbean, from which all of our other podcasts are derived. And you can keep on top of everything that we do, all of the latest episodes that we post, on our website, righttakepodcast.com. So until next time, guys, tune in next week for episode number nine.